Earlier this year, the research firm EAB released a report titled, Are Districts the Nation's Adolescent Mental Health Care Providers? And it noted that over the past 10 years, the rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide ideation among students have all gone up. A lot. It pointed to a 17% increase in anxiety disorders over the last decade, an 80% increase in adolescents experiencing serious depression, and even more heartbreaking, over 3,000 suicide attempts made each day by students in grades 9 through 12. And that was before COVID-19. The full impact of the pandemic on student mental health has yet to be seen. These students who are getting mental health care, three quarters of them get that care at school. If you want to read the report, we'll include a link in the show notes. All of this comes at a time when schools are feeling stretched on every front. And so the question we wanted to ask in response to this report was, okay, if students are looking to schools to provide that kind of mental health care, are schools ready for that? From Frontline Education, this is Field Trip. One of the things that I thought when I read that article was that it said we're becoming the de facto mental health care piece. I would argue that we have been. That is Ted Knightsky. He's the executive director of the Cooperative Educational Service Agency 6 in Wisconsin. The role of teachers and the support structures, the student services teams have always been there. I think the shift is we are becoming aware that mental health is just like any other part of the body that brain health and heart health and physical health and muscular health are one and the same. And it's no longer uh, a stereotype. So it is no longer a problem to go see the counselor. It is no longer a problem to be seeking professional support to help you drive the, the odd narratives out of your head. So when I saw the article, I was like, this is just now coming to light because we are now comfortable as an American society having the conversation that when your brain hurts and your heart hurts and it's one and the same, we need to address it. Before, I think what we did was we did the classic, you know, American rub a little dirt on it, kid. Everybody's got a problem. Life's a bowl of cherries. Sometimes there's pits mindset. And now it's, wow, if we really want the best out of this generation, as well as ourselves, we need to deal with some things and we're up and starting on it. Dennis Griffin, the principal at Brown Deer Elementary School in Wisconsin, agrees that schools have already been caring for students' mental health. There's always been kids that have come to school with trauma. And one of the things that I think we have to start focusing in on is like, as educators, what is our primary focus? Because sometimes there's a shift and we don't talk about it a lot. Sometimes as educators, we are like, we are content people. Some educators look at it as, I'm here to teach kids. And in there is where you get how we can successfully engage with uh, the different levels of trauma, because I've always been, I'm, a, I'm here to educate kids first. And I understood that a lot of my students would come to me with various challenges from their personal lives. And I cannot expect them to enter the school and leave all their problems at the door and then pick them up on their way out. It varies. 
I think some schools are very ready. They've been anticipating this for some time. They've been adding to their staff, training their staff, putting programs in place. Other schools, not so much. This is Suzanne Seibel. She's a school counselor and founder of Youth Risk Prevention Specialists. I've worked in a number of districts in a number of different capacities, and I have found that some schools are phenomenally prepared in all facets of social-emotional health, and others are pretty far behind. They, they don't know what they don't know. So they haven't put things into place because they're not even aware that maybe they should or that these things are available to them. The truth is, and you know this, traditionally schools are set up to really educate students and mental health professionals, whether they're social workers, psychologists, counselors, were brought into schools to help students to be able and ready to learn. Jim Wright is an RTI CCSS trainer and consultant. He has also served as a school psychologist and a school administrator, and he runs the website interventioncentral.org. We've now moved into something like what I'll call mission creep. That is, schools were kind of set up as primary sites to really, you know, help kids to, to be educated. But because in reality, a lot of students can only really access mental health services in school settings, we're beginning to think nationally that maybe schools should also take on uh, an additional mission, and that is to provide primary mental health services for students. So your question, Ryan, was how, how prepared are schools to do that? And I think right now we're probably underprepared, in part because we simply don't have that kind of staffing. So schools can do an amazing amount of things to really prepare and, and support students in, around issues of mental health. They can reach out to area agencies to kind of make referrals, et cetera. But to go that next step and to say that schools are going to be kind of that primary contact point for mental health services for students, um, I don't think we have the funding and I don't think we really have the plan in place to make that happen yet, but that, that doesn't mean that that's not a good goal. April Strong, a prevention intervention program specialist at Martin County Schools in Florida, believes that schools are becoming the primary place students go for mental health care because of the variety of roles that already exist on school campuses. Education really centers around being able to make changes on the fly to meet the needs of students, families, stakeholders. So in our practice, we're used to adding one more thing, learning something new or trying something for a solution-based result. And I think that might be one of the reasons that schools may be becoming what's perceived to be the primary um, ones involved with mental health. It will never be enough, no matter what we do, even if we were to be primary. Um, I think that schools are doing a great job modeling partnerships with the right agencies in order to provide enough for our students. But I think it's not necessarily the schools becoming primary, but really it's becoming a hub for so many different resources in one spot. Paul O'Neill is supervisor of instruction at Mill Pond Elementary School in New Jersey. And as he looks at schools across the country, he has a sobering view, but he also sees a silver lining. I have to be honest here, I don't think schools are ready overall. And it's a loaded answer because you know, you could look at a pre-COVID world versus a post-COVID world and what those settings look like. And I'm not so sure about our readiness pre-COVID, but now post-COVID, we're facing issues and problems that we, we don't even know what they are yet. You know, students are going to come back to us in, in various states and conditions, you know, and, and some of them are going to want to share their experiences, you know, very much, and they're going to want to feel connected again. Um, some of them are not going to want to share their experiences at all, and some might want to talk just you know, at their own convenience level. So 
I, I think that in general, we have a lot of work to do, but hopefully this, one of the benefits of, of COVID-19 is that maybe this will bring us all together as an industry and shine a spotlight on the fact that there's still a lot of work for us to do to get ready to provide better mental health services. So what are schools doing well as they look to care for the mental health of their students? Dr. Dorothea Gordon, the Executive Director of Special Education at Grand Prairie ISD in Texas, sees a number of things. Well, I think they are doing well in creating a sense of awareness, in engaging the community, and preparing our our teachers, our, I say our first responders, because when I think of teachers, I'm also thinking of the bus drivers. They're the first people who see our scholars, right? So why are we training them up? Are we creating that sense of awareness? Are we training them up to identify those triggers that you may see in, in a scholar that we really that they really need to connect them with their teacher or their counselor? So um, as a whole in schools, I do agree that they're creating a sense of awareness, that they are engaging our community, our in-school internal community, but also our external community with uh, providing resources to parents and, and offering them to scholars the outside resources that they may need to support them, not only when they're with us during the school day, but are we providing them those outside resources specifically with food and shelter, um, healthcare overall? So I think what we're doing well is creating a sense of awareness with that. I think we're starting to see that so much help that young people get related to their mental health has to do with what gets in the way of them doing well in school. And oftentimes that's trauma or that's things related to um, caregivers that just have obstacles in their way. Todd Shirley is a school counselor at Downingtown School District in Pennsylvania. I know our district is one of many that that is putting a big emphasis on parent education, trying to inform parents about different things uh, so they can help their their children be better students. So the things that I think are are helpful are are this increased knowledge and this this movement to you know trauma informed schools and really working to empower and educate parents. I do think it's an awareness that's coming about, and that's positive. Dr. Missy Brooks is the Director of Instruction and Special Education at Mountain Brook Schools in Birmingham, Alabama. Even on the state level here in Alabama, they're starting to plan for different resources. So during this pandemic, I've been on a task force for special education and kind of how we're going to, what are we going to do for special ed students um, during this time? And there is also another subcommittee that just is focusing on mental health. And I know that in my subcommittee, it's come up. So it is definitely a topic that's on the forefront of what, you know, national and state leaders are thinking and probably local leaders as well. Another thing I think that some schools are doing really well is having prevention programs in place. So having suicide prevention education, having a suicide screening program, training staff to pick up warning signs of suicide, violence, Um, depression, anxiety, you know, various types of mental health concerns, because staff is in a really unique position, school staff, kids, prior to the COVID-19 outbreak, kids are there, they're in school every day. And so the staff members can observe and detect changes in behavior, changes in mood. So they're in a great place 
to identify issues and refer for help if they know what to look for. They know, and sometimes it's just behavior that a teacher might see and say, you know, this kid is behaving so badly, it's really frustrating, not realizing that that can be an indicator of something deeper. So schools that have preventive programs that are doing um, maybe some peer activities where the students take over and they educate their peers about mental health and how it's common it is, introduce the statistics about adolescent mental health and try to do activities that can reduce that stigma so kids are more comfortable reaching out. I think those are some really great things too. I think what schools tend to do pretty well, knowing their students, is to at least begin to identify those students who are really kind of struggling from a mental health perspective and to try to get some kind of services and supports in place to help them. Um, When I think about the psychologist, the social worker, the counselor, uh, one of the, the, the common services that they, they supply and do a good job of, to answer your question, is, is really direct counseling. I think um, we're being responsive to individual needs, but it's a little bit like triage. Mark Hansen is the superintendent at the school district of Elmbrook in Wisconsin. So when the need comes up, I think we're able to serve kids. We're able to connect families and kids to outside providers. So we become the bridge to the mental health community for kids who have needs or families that have needs. So we we're connecting them to external resources really, really well. Um, I think the identification process has become better. So we're able to intervene more quickly than we would have in the past. I think we've pivoted resources to creatively meet the needs of kids. But we're also going to see a a wave that we're just not sure what the depth and volume will be in the future. So there is a a level of uncertainty that keeps me up at night. That uncertainty is something that most everybody is feeling. Even schools with the most well-thought-through plans and the best resources have room to grow, especially right now as the pandemic puts increasing pressure on the mental health of everyone. So where do schools have the most room to improve? My concern is there's this cattle shoot model that we have to get away from in American schools. And the best thing we can do for student mental health is increase the ratio of adults to students. So it's less anonymous. It's less isolating. Funding. I'm always going to go back to funding. I think we'll always talk about not having enough there, but also funding or not training. So think about and with so much respect, and I I want to carefully address you know, the school resource officers or the social workers that are newer to the environment of school. They went to school for something different than we did as educators. We have pedagogy or andragogy, in in my case, as a district instructional coach, they have amazing skills that they gained as well that maybe aren't pedagogy, andragogy. So when we are dealing with the young adult, I think that's where we can improve. How do you empower the school resource officer to know enough pedagogy when dealing with a young child or, you know, the student, but also keeping true to what they need to do as a school resource officer. So I don't know that it's a clear answer, but I just feel like there's, there's this really small sliver of gray space that educators can't do enough and neither can the other side. There has to be some sort of learning in between. We have to be intentional about our professional development and to include all of those stakeholders, not specifically teachers in the classroom. And I'm going to go back to, you know, 
our um, auxiliary personnel, our bus drivers, our, our cafeterias, our uh, building monitors, our security team. Those are the people that our scholars see first and foremost. So are we intentionally involving all of those? Also, are we involving our SROs, our school resource officers in identifying, identifying whatever triggers that the scholars may have? I think hiring enough staff that is well-trained to know what to do when there are some mental health concerns, I think that's one. Um, Schools that aren't already doing extensive training of staff, I think, could improve by bringing in programs, bringing in experts to talk about it, to talk about warning signs, to talk about what to do if you see this, to understand things like if a student has experienced domestic violence or a student has PTSD, such and such behavior on your part could be a trigger. It's not that the kid is trying to be, you know, really naughty or behave badly, but that you're standing too close or you're touching his shoulder or you're, you know, being confrontational could be triggering a student's mental health concerns. Um, So I think staff needs that kind of training. And most teachers I've talked to would tell you, yes, we really, really need that because they're kind of scared. They're nervous about this. They don't want to do the wrong thing. And, you know, many teachers have not been trained in that. If there's a, a, a downside right now in how schools are responding with their mental health staff, I think it's that they tend to over-rely on direct counseling and they don't always use the full kind of array of services that are more indirect that these mental health professionals can offer that would really help schools to do a better job of delivering some of those mental health services. Where many schools fall somewhat short is that in the midst of any individual student crisis, they do a great job of scrambling to respond, but we don't have good proactive preventative kinds of systems in place to be able to head off some of these issues, identify kids at risk before smaller problems kind of you know, cascade into larger mental health issues. So I would really be looking at that RTI, that MTSS approach, and I would be putting the psychologists, counselors, social workers right in the center of helping to design that systemic kind of school-wide approach. Most educators intuitively understand the importance of caring for student mental health. But I still wanted to ask the question and get a variety of perspectives. What is the impact on education when students experience mental health concerns? If you're not feeling safe, you know, you're not feeling cared for. I think that that's number one, Learn, learning, true learning and, and, and discovering the possibilities of potential can't be achieved if you're not feeling safe. You know, so I think num- number one, first and foremost, we've got to make sure that's established. But beyond that, it's important because that can't be the only step. The, the next step has to be that the kids have the, the tools in their tool belt to be able to deploy them when needed, you know, when they're in crisis, you know, or, or when, when they're feeling issues that are impacting their mental health. Students, I feel not only they have to be comfortable reaching out, but they first of all have to identify that there's a problem, you know, that there's an issue and then feel comfortable sharing that problem. And then from the the adults perspective, especially teachers, because, you know, teachers and administrators, you know, we're not trained like counselors are. So counselors might be able to to naturally step in and work with these students, but we have to realize those very first steps where things are starting to to be difficult for students, we have to be able to, to mitigate that harm, you know, mitigate that damage by being able to discuss with them certain things and, you know, continue to, to make sure they understand that they're safe and that they should communicate with an adult and it's not a weakness and, you know, it's not something to be made fun of, but mental health is a, 
is a very important thing. It drives everything that we do. You know, it kind of goes back to uh, Maslow's hierarchy. You know, if you don't feel safe in your building, you're not going to be able to learn. And, and a lot of times we may provide a safe environment, but if they're not feeling safe internally, if there is something that's worrying them so much, we can't reach them. Um, it's kind of like if a student is starving, well, they're more thinking about food than they are what we're teaching them in science that day. So I think it's the same with mental health. I think we have to address those problems. Otherwise, we're not reaching them because they're so focused on something else. And, and that, I think, is just the nature of mental health. We've got to realize that that is part of what we have to do to be able to teach kids. We have to break down that barrier as well. It's really hard to learn when your mind is somewhere else, when you can barely get up in the morning and get out of bed and go to school, when you are feeling like a failure, thinking suicidal thoughts, anxious about school, have possibly have an early onset of a psychosis. Students experience some of these things. How do you possibly learn and achieve in the classroom when that's happening? But beyond that, how do you develop the social skills you need to develop as an adolescent? because that's a time developmentally where they need that. So if you feel insecure or not good enough or suicidal or worthless, how are you gonna interact with others and build those skills? So I think that's really huge as well. And that's part of what we do in school. Let me get really personal here, Ryan. Um, one of the drivers for me entering this profession was as a high school student, I lost my best friend to suicide. And it taught me lessons that um, drove me to become an educator, uh, to help kids. And ultimately that same tragedy of suicide uh, has appeared on our doorsteps repeatedly in our community. It wasn't that long ago that I went to my 12th funeral for suicide uh, in a five year span. Um, this is not okay. We've got to put a marker down uh, as educational leaders and say, uh, the, the dramatic rise in teen suicide in this country is a crisis. So more and more students are looking to schools for mental health care, schools that are ready for them or not to varying degrees. And when students don't get that care, the consequences are real. So what do schools need in order to rise to this challenge? What do they need to have? And what do they need to do? First one is listen. It's the first step in youth mental health first aid. And I think it's the first step overall, no matter what your role is. We have to listen to one another and stay informed whether that be through training or just through conversation, staying informed, and then also practicing, simulating, having conversations that do cause discomfort. So when you're in the real deal, you feel comforted that you can navigate or facilitate what might be happening. Because in our role, we're used to being facilitators. So that can only be done with practice. And that, that requires a, a team effort of that collaboration and simulation. There is training that we need, like, I'll be honest. But a lot of that training, I think, has to happen within schools where we sit down with each other at a table and try to figure out a plan and understand that we're willing to give it our best shot only to come back and say, what can we do better? 
I think far too often we look at everything from let me bring somebody in from the outside and they talk to us and tell us and then the problem is solved. Or let me go buy this program. And if I buy this program and I say, here, Ryan, here's the program, do everything that the program says, I think we're looking for magic bullets and we need to understand that there never was a magic bullet. Once we get rid of that mentality, I think it will open us up to be more vulnerable and have more conversations to shift the narrative of what kids need, but then also what we need in the process too. And like, I'm not trying to say we don't need training. I'm not trying to say we don't need SEL training. I'm not trying to say we don't need a curriculum that everyone's on. Like, I'm not trying to say that. But if we can't get past that level, how do we implement a curriculum with fidelity if we don't all have the same values? For myself, I'm more about let's get people in a room and create shared values and then move forward. Because if I know we all have shared values and we're moving forward, then we're going to be flexible enough to admit, like, here's why I need help. What ideas do you have? Can you come in and make an observation? How can you help me build a better relationship with someone? One of the things that I've been telling our teachers is if you spend two minutes with a student for 10 days in a row, just have a conversation with them in the hall before they walk into the classroom, then you're going to know a little bit more about that student. And because you took two minutes a day, then that student is going to build a relationship with you. And that's the key thing that we need to remember. It is about relationships. You want students to be able to, to talk to you. And even though I taught science and English, I wanted to be a science and English teacher. I didn't want to be a mental health person. But that's part of the job. And I think more than ever, it's part of the job. If anything, it's more building a relationship with community entities and family to all sit down at a table and say, okay, Here's our pot of resources. What all can we do? Instead of just making it a school thing, we need to make it a community thing. The long-term play is we need to intentionally teach social and emotional development to every learner in our system. And having a, a curriculum that can be rapidly scaled out to all learners is super important, regardless of your urban, suburban, or rural setting. I think we need to train our teachers on trauma-informed care and how, how do we help kids that maybe don't have all the support structures that we think of when we think of a traditional childhood. And how do we teach empathy and care for the adults that will then wrap around that child so they can be more successful. All of that takes time. It doesn't necessarily always mean more money, but it just takes time. And having a really intentional approach on training teachers on building curriculum and then the supporting materials that go along with that. Uh, that will take some money too, but uh, we got to understand that the long-term play is to be better. When we know better, we need to do better. And we know better right now that the social emotional development of kids, even pre-COVID-19, was increasingly becoming a space where we knew we had to get better. One, we need to create a sense of awareness, our own self, right? We need to ensure that we have the training available in order to effectively advocate for our, our scholars, that we are aware of those resources. We need to, again, provide that professional development to all of the uh, stakeholders in our school systems, um, specifically 
to our auxiliary um, team members who are the ones that see our scholars first. As educators, we're planners and we're preparers and we love to have our hands on the future and we love to have our, our eyes on the future and we know exactly how it's going to go. But for one of the first times, at least in my 21 years in education, I don't feel as confident as I have my hands you know, strictly on it. And I know a lot of other educators feel the same way. So how is that accomplished? I think that's accomplished by leaning on your professional network. And that's key because I'm not talking about just the people that you work with and the people that you teach with, because those, those type of conversations are good and, and they're important because those people understand what the day-to-day functions are, what the challenges are, what, what the realities are, what we're going to face. But you've got to go beyond that because if, if you're strictly speaking to people that you deal with every day, then the conversations always end up the same way. We don't have enough of this. We don't have enough of that. We've got too much of this. That's a hurdle or an obstacle or a barrier. So you need to really extend that professional learning network to include people in your state, people you know in your county, in your state, in your region, you know, and people throughout the country. Immerse yourself in the social emotional learning research that's emerging. Castle and others have put together a wide variety of resources that are super super helpful. Dive into the self-harm research and the rise in teen suicide. And do you have tools in your district that can help identify kids who have a plan and have an intervention system? Are your counselors equipped to have tough conversations with moms and dads about kids not being well right now? The emerging academic gaps when you have schools in emergency remote learning Are you reading how things transpired in New Orleans after Katrina? Just understanding some of the research around academic loss or or knowing that our intervention systems for reading and arithmetic are going to have to be uh, turned on very, very fast in the fall. Do, Do you know which of your interventions work best for kindergartners who can't read yet? First graders who are struggling reading. Is, is there deep embedding of science-based reading instruction going on in your system? Those would be some things I would be working on as a superintendent. I asked everyone I spoke to about this to make a prediction, to look into the crystal ball. If you look five to 10 years into the future, what do you think the landscape will be when it comes to student mental health and education? Oh man, that's going to be exciting. Five years from now, with the amount of focus on the whole child, making sure that each kid has what they need in order to be successful and a a significant infusion in empathy and then developmental understandings for those children, that's gonna be awesome. And as long as we can maintain that core focus and break the stereotypes that kids and adults who struggle with mental illness aren't broken, right? They're just sprained. That will be great. Um, That takes a mindset shift, a cultural shift, and an understanding, and that takes time. We need to embrace this. We need to make it okay at an earlier age to seek help when your heart and head are sprained so that you learn the strategies and, and skills to, to be resilient and have grit. It's the old way where we expect people to be resilient and we expect them to be gritty, but we don't train them up. I think that's the great shift for our, for our country and our nation is that The teachers coming out of school right now are understanding mental health. The teachers who are in schools really get that, wow, this is a real thing, and these kids can be amazing. I I think that we are living in a time where we are observing the greatest generation of Americans who are currently in our schools. They are more understanding of other people. Generation Z, these kids 
they are phenomenal. They're more empathetic than any other generation. They are more caring. They're more accepting. I don't know. I think we're living some amazing times and it's only going to get better. I do believe that a lot more of the colleges, uh, teacher preparation programs, the um, administrative programs, they're going to have to make a shift at some point to help educate around trauma that kids experience. And I'm not sure how you actually give everyone that experience because I'm not sure it's something you can just do out of a textbook. I would hope that we are looking at how we do things. And I would hope that the entire way we do school changes. Um, what that looks like, I'm not 100% sure. Um, should there be some sort of blended model? Uh, should there be more student voice and student choice in the things that they have to do? I, I would hope that would happen. I would hope that schools are more flexible and uh, less, you know, got to do it this way, this way, this way. It's my way or the highway kind of thing. Um, I would hope that we would see those things. And because we're responding in those ways, I think we might see different structures in place. So different kinds of scheduling so that there is built in time in the schedule for building relationships. And it's not just going class to class to class to class for content. I don't know that I would have had an easy answer for that before COVID, but when I saw how quickly at least some school systems have adapted to and adopted online learning, um, I can really see a place for online mental health support as well. One of the great barriers to getting good high quality mental health services uh, to kids is simply having good highly qualified personnel available, right? So if we can find a way, whether it's group counseling, whether it's individual check-ins, to do a lot of that, obviously with, with high level of, of you know, computer security, to be able to deliver those services remotely to some, some of our students, I really see that as being um, five or 10 years from now, an area of real growth. I think they'll be better prepared. I really do. I think possibly the COVID crisis has served as an impetus to get people more prepared. Maybe they were thinking about it, but it didn't seem as urgent. But now we're reading and hearing a lot about what this has done to students and to people in general. And we know, we feel it ourselves. So I think this may be an impetus for change. And I think there'll be schools will be better prepared. I think they'll start to see these are some gaps that we have and we need to do something about this. So they'll collaborate more, maybe look at other districts who have things in place and say, you know, how did you get this going? Maybe we need to do this. I think they're kind of scared, a lot of districts. So that fear is a great motivator generally. And I think it will push schools to have more staff, to have that staff be better prepared, to know what to look for to maybe network and have like memoranda of understanding with agencies in the area to either come into the school or to be a referral resource. I really see that happening. I hope I'm right. My favorite question I asked about student mental health was this. To go along with that crystal ball, let's also give you a magic wand. If you could snap your fingers and change just one thing immediately, right now, to help students in the area of mental health, or to help schools as they do this work, what would it be? That this is an acceptable topic, that we're not ashamed, we're not hiding, we're not afraid to say that I feel this, or my sister, brother, mother, whoever is going through that. I wish that we got to a place where it's, how are you? And if the answer is not good, the next question is, 
what can I do? Or, you know, knowing the resource to connect to. So I would love for that stigma to be gone. Feeding our scholars. They cannot learn if they're hungry. They cannot learn if that basic need is not met. So if I guess that I think is right, now I would ensure that we've had some type of food pantry, if not on every campus, but available within the district, maybe one or two, maybe three, depending on the size of the district, where our families can have access to the food they need to feed their brain in order for us to get about our business of, of, of serving them and teaching them. Honest to God, snap my fingers. I'm Thanos here. I got the gauntlet. I can do this. I would make a change that would prioritize sleep among personnel and students. If I had my way and my magical powers to do this, you would no longer see teachers, counselors, principals coming into school with these giant cups of, of caffeinated drinks. I see the health of a lot of teachers really deteriorate and everyone talks of being sleep deprived. So I don't know what that would involve, but I think this sleep debt that we have as, as a society that can be found in any community has a huge influence on mental health and quality of instruction that is typically ignored. Nobody seems to want to touch it. Nobody seems to want to look at it. I love, love coffee. Even if I'm, I get enough sleep, I still have coffee. But the reality of this is we're all operating on credit because we're all tired. Biologically, the antiquated bell system and the school hours of a school day do not fit biologically with students. Additionally, I wish, I wish a lot of students had an extra year or two of education before they entered the adult world and the working world because their brains just aren't ready yet. You know, sidebar to this, I wish the driving age was raised to 21 at least. Because again, the, uh, the driver that's the hardest to insure is the teenage driver for good reasons. We, we, we've given them too much too fast. Same thing has happened with gaming. Same thing has happened with um, iPhones and so forth. We're just, we're going too fast with things and sleep is suffering, you know? So it's kind of like if we were, if we were training Olympic runners, but we were giving them cigarettes regularly. That's what we're doing with the school system. We're, we're putting all those demands on them and we're making it harder for them to get a good night of sleep. It, it's so hard to wish for one thing, but I really think the key to everything is awareness. You know, awareness is the most important piece. You know, we, we've all got to be able to first understand that there's a problem. Secondly, be able to identify the problem and, and, and kind of know what's at our avail. You know, so, th so there has to be not only more discussion about mental health and, and even the social emotional components that lead to that even the executive functioning components that lead to that. That's another important piece, you know, how kids self-regulate, how kids prepare, you know, how kids plan, like all of that stuff is tied into mental health. So I, I think the biggest thing, if I had a magic wand is a resurgence of a focus on the total whole child, you know, really needs to be it. Honestly, if I could snap my fingers, I would love to have somebody fully dedicated to mental health in every one of my buildings. So that as things arose, they could work with the counselor, they could work with the teacher, they could work with parents. I would love that. Right now, I think there's a lot of piecemeal approach to that. And if you had someone in the building that knew the kids, that knew the structure of the day, that knew those things, I think it would make a huge difference. I would like to have a climate of greater empathy where Everyone 
understands or at least listens to and is open to learning about others' challenges and differences. When I think about the strongest and most empathic and most uh, effective teachers and how very often they're able to help students with real mental health issues to really find success in the classroom, I would want every teacher to have the appropriate toolkit to be able to confidently and comfortably manage many of the mental health issues that kids bring into classrooms. And I'm not really trying to state this as something that is beyond imagining because many teachers do this already. But if I could take sort of that performance, that sensitive, appropriate, um, in the moment kind of supportive performance of kind of our quote unquote strongest teachers in those areas and make that just the routine toolkit for every teacher, if I could stand my fingers and do that, that would be what I would ask for. Because obviously when kids struggle, they're often struggling in classrooms. Those classroom teachers have such potential to kind of be that empathic connecting person and certainly psychologists, social workers, and counselors can support those teachers, but I want teachers to have that toolkit, if I could. If I could snap the fingers and do that, that's what I would snap for. I guess my snap would be an immediate emergency mindset in the community to engage resources and strategies so people were working together. Uh, right now, we're working siloed and in isolation and really, really good things are happening, but man, there is a lot of power and confluence. When you bring together all these different groups, when the county and the city and the nonprofits and the schools are all on the same page and can park their egos, wow. My wish would be, you know, that confluence of all organizations, nonprofits, public entities, county governments, city governments, and schools, all with the objective of, we got to make these kids amazing citizens of our nation because they are the future. And cue Whitney Houston, but these kids are awesome and they can do great things. I would snap my fingers and I would embed a greater sense of empathy within everyone. Without the ability to understand another person, you can't connect. Without the ability to take the time to say, I appreciate who you are right now, but I am here to learn from you to learn with you and for us both to evolve takes a high level of empathy and you can't rush that. That is what I would do because the more and more that we become empathetic and we can just listen to one another's story, but then let that story move us to action and move us to action versus judgment. Because a lot of times in our world right now, we allow our bias to create this judgment piece. And that judgment piece leads to more fear, whereas empathy leads to more understanding. So if I had to go, I would go with empathy because empathy is the greatest level of change for us. Field Trip is a podcast from Frontline Education. Frontline is the leading provider of school administrative software. That includes Frontline School Health Management, an electronic health record system with tools to help you keep track of health data for all students. It also includes tools to support mental and behavioral health management, as well as COVID-19 functionality to help you easily collect and track health data for students and staff and keep your school community safe. For more information, visit frontlineeducation.com slash fieldtrippodcast. For Frontline Education, I'm Ryan Estes. Thanks for listening and have a great day.